I've wanted to preach this sermon really as a standalone message for a couple months now. It's been mostly written, and I've been waiting for the timing. And I'm not really sure what I was waiting for, but a couple reasons why today feels like the, the right time. As we're in this transition and heading into a new season with unknowns and uncertainties, but knowing that God will be with us, how we walk with Him in the season ahead is vital. I don't think there could be anything more important than, than, than that posture before God. And then second, this passage in Mark 8 that we find ourselves in as we're journeying through the gospel of Mark, Mark 8, 11 through 13, this encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees really becomes a springboard into this conversation, I think, in a really powerful way. So here again, as we read it last week, Mark 8, 11 through 13, the Pharisees came to Jesus and began to question him, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got into the boat, and crossed to the other side. A short, emotional, uh, kind of powerful encounter, one of many that he has with the Pharisees. I, I found myself you know, trying intentionally to read Jesus' question with a different tone than I would normally read it. I think because it's preceded by a deep sigh, which we saw him do uh, in, in the last chapter also, at the brokenness that was in the world. This man who was deaf and mute, he took a deep sigh at the brokenness that he continued to see in this world. Here, he sighs again, and, and I think I want to read his, his question as, why? This arms up exasperation. I don't know if you read it that way or not. Why does this generation seek a sign? But that would indicate that Jesus is confused about why the Pharisees are, are demanding a sign from him, and he is anything but confused. I believe he is making a point, and he is teaching even his disciples as his primary audience. Why does this generation seek a sign? In other words, why are they asking something from me? What are they wanting in their Messiah? We should know this by now, that it's not, it's not what they should be wanting. They're wanting their, their Messiah to be in their own mold, right? They, they want deliverance from Roman oppression. That's, that's their, their political hope in a coming Messiah, and there's much language surrounding that in the Old Testament prophecies. The, the Messiah would come and deliver. He would be their, their king. And so they believe political freedom is at hand when the Messiah comes. So they want their freedom, their power, and really their return to their glory days. At one time in their history, Israel was one of the more powerful peoples in the region, at least within, within their range in the Middle East. And they want to return to, to those days, to that power, to that freedom, and they want a king to unite them because they've been divided and to lead them into victory because they've been oppressed. That's what they're longing for in a Messiah. And they've already got the slogan picked out for him. He just needs to come and embrace it. Make Israel great again. A little political... Whatever sign they were seeking, they wanted it to be some kind of show of power that was unmistakable and who their Messiah would be. Mark uses intentionally the same word for test. They came to test or tempt him. It's peirazzo in the Greek that he used in Mark chapter 1 when Satan came and tempted Jesus. And how did Satan tempt him? What was he testing him about? He was, he was tempting him, Jesus, to become a Messiah in his way. 
in the way of the world, right? A Messiah that would choose power over humility, that would exercise strength and, and, and wipe out all who would oppose him. One who chooses to live by their own strength and their own power, not by humility and not by drawing on the strength of another. One who puts trust in themselves and into the, the worldly systems of power, not into a God who has all authority and power, but has come to serve and to give away his life, to lay it down in love and meekness and humility. I think we can only speculate what sign they were asking for. Do they want lightning from a clear blue sky? Do they want him to levitate up above them or something completely else? Or do they even know what they were asking from him? But something that would just clearly demonstrate his authority and power to rule and to be king, like a warrior king. And ironically, he is that, but his enemy is not the kingdoms of this earth. But his battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms. And he came to deliver people spiritually, to give them freedom eternally. And they were longing for a Messiah on their terms. That's the heart of it into their mold, to act out according to their script. They wanted him to be a, a monkey messiah. That phrase kept coming to mind, like a, like a trained monkey bound to a street performer that, that, would, that would gain the approval and the applause of those watching. You know, dance for us, perform for us, and we will applaud for you. We'll bring others to see you. This is what they were coming to Jesus for. I, I think it's ironic that, it, that this encounter, this short one, happens right here in the story. Now, certainly, it seems to fit right around this time, although Mark writes thematically much more than chronologically. We've seen that again and again. So there's a reason why he puts this encounter right here. Right after Jesus has fed 4,000 people, again, multiplied the fish, multiplied the loaves, this, and, and all eight, thousands, experienced the miraculous provision of God, ate and were satisfied. And the Pharisees are unsatisfied. They don't want this kind of Messiah. This sign wasn't enough for them. They didn't want a Messiah who feeds and gives and fills generously, who is lowly and humble and compassionate and is a sheep for lost shepherds. For, uh, is a shepherd for lost sheep serving those in need. That's not the Messiah they wanted. That didn't do it for them. And I think Mark wants us to see that in the midst of this. What do we want Jesus to be for us? What do we want him to do for us? Does our posture toward him and our prayers reveal that we're more similar to the Pharisees, demanding Jesus to, to do, to work, to behave in a way that fits our script or our storyline on our terms. And maybe we wouldn't be as brazen to, to, say, to, to pray things like, Jesus, if you, would, if you would just make yourself known, then I will worship you, follow you, trust you, bring others to you. We showed up. I showed up, Jesus. You show up now. Jesus, if you'll answer my prayers in the way that I want, of course, then I will give my life fully to you. I will cheer for you, and I will draw others to you. And perhaps we're not that brazen, but we can still come to Jesus and want him on our own terms. 
It's the and Jesus way of life. I want to live my life and I want Jesus to be there, to bless it, to come. I know I will need him at times. When, when my life is in trouble, when I face pain or persecution or hardship or trials, I know I'll need help. And I want Jesus to be there when I need that help. This perspective and, and posture toward God seems to be pervasive. It's a natural response that, that we seem to have. And it's why Jesus warned his disciples a few verses later when they were in the boat together. This is verse 15. He said, be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, clearly he's using satire again in this, in this time where, where provisions and bread were often scarce even for the disciples. And he had just provided abundantly to, see, to test them even and to see how they were seen spiritually seen with kingdom eyes, or were they still thinking of temporal things, and they still fall short here again. Oh, he didn't bring any bread. Oh, no, that's what he's talking about, when by far he is talking metaphorically to make a point. What does yeast do? But a little bit of it works, and it influences the entire dough. And what he's saying is the message the Pharisees are, are preaching is an attractive one. The ways of the world, the ways of power, the ways of Herod are attractive, they would draw you in. Beware of that message because this way, right? The way of the kingdom is narrow and it's hard. This way of living into the kingdom and loving and serving and pouring yourself out for the last and the least likely is hard. It's not attractive. It's not glamorous. The ways of the world elevate glamour and fame and power and authority. And it doesn't take much to be drawn in, to have that influence your entire life. The Pharisees' message was their Messiah was going to come and deliver from Rome, reward them for their faithfulness, for how strictly they adhered to the law, to keep them in their positions of influence and power and probably elevate them even more. Bless them with these, these high places of honor. That's what their Messiah was going to do, they believed. Don't follow Jesus Jesus isn't going to deliver you from pain and persecution and poverty. He's going to lead you into it. If you follow him, you're going to be sorely mistaken. You're going to be on the losing team. See, the attraction of the message of the Pharisees can seep and infiltrate in and influence all of us. This is where the rubber continually meets the road, so to speak. Do we want the kingdom of God or do we want the kingdom of men? Do we want a life of power, a life of control and autonomy, or do we want a life of peace? Do we want wealth or do we want joy? Do we want safety or do we want hope? I think we want both. I think we want power, wealth, safety, and peace, joy, and hope. And it doesn't seem to work that way in God's kingdom. How many have tragically made the mistake of pursuing the former, of power, of control, of wealth, of security, believing they will then acquire, can acquire, can purchase, can buy peace, joy, and hope. And it doesn't work that way in God's kingdom. Those are gifts of his grace. Those are the results of walking with him in his kingdom. He may or may not give us any. It's not saying any kind of control or security. 
or wealth is wrong, but the pursuit of them when Jesus says you can serve but one master. The pursuit of them can lead us further away from the kingdom, not closer. I want to borrow from this simple yet profound concept, which is part of the message that I've been wanting to preach, and this has been the springboard for that. This is from pastor and author Sky Jatani in his book, With. He's a former Alliance pastor and currently an author, speaker, and podcaster. How many listen to The Holy Post? John, you turned on to this, me on to this podcast, I think, a year ago. Uh, like he's, he's with Phil Vischer on this weekly podcast. Phil Vischer, you might remember, created VeggieTales, the voice of Bob and Larry. So there's some silliness because that's Phil's simply just personality. That's his God-given image. But there's a really sound dialogue on what it means to walk with Jesus in this current cultural moment and context. And so I really appreciate their ministry. I appreciate Sky's pastoral ministry. He's written uh, a number of things. He does a daily uh, Walking with God podcast also, and I would just encourage you to tune in. But I wanted, I wanted to bring this because I feel like it's such a simple yet profound message of what it is, what postures we can take in our relationship or lack thereof toward God. And he describes four wrong postures that just seem natural to us, and one correct one. We can live a life over God, under God, for God, or from God. But none of those are what we were created for. And I think his title betrays it. We were meant to live a life with God. Now and forever. And I think many of us believe in the forever part. The forever part is heaven. One day we will live with God forever. But we fail here and now to take that posture. We take another posture of over, under, from, or for God. Quick overview. Find yourself in this or your tendency. One of them is going to probably be more natural to you, either because it's the way you were raised or taught, or perhaps just because it's the way we are drawn away from God in this world. Try to find the Pharisees in this. I don't think that's hard either as we consider the, the passage before us. The life over God approach, this may be like the agnostic. An agnostic believes there, there likely is a God or divine power out there somewhere, but he's totally uninvolved. He cannot be known truly. And so it may look like a life without God, but they would not call themselves an atheist. So it may, it may come into, it may be like a, a superstitious kind of life. That there's a divine power or within the universe, and maybe we can tap into that or manipulate that somehow through our behaviors, through our actions. It's a life over God to manipulate any divine power to serve our needs or to, to bring us some form of uh, blessing or satisfaction. It may also be a religious life that God has given us a set of instructions and rules, a rule book to follow while on earth. He's not involved anymore. He's created this world but stepped back. It's often been called the the, the watchmaker analogy. He created this intricate design, wound it up, and is letting it go. And we're living in that. He's not involved currently, presently, but he has given us enough instructions to follow, and that's how life works best. So to the best of our ability, we're going to religiously adhere. There's no relationship with God in the life over God, but it is trying to get something from him. The life under God. This posture is similar to the religious life over God, and yet it has a relationship with God, but a broken one, an unhealthy one. It fears God as its first response. God is up there. Maybe he's aloof, but he is watching. 
He can reach in and be involved. And he may punish at any moment if we are not faithful to him, if we don't obey all of his rules and all of his laws. And we never know when that could be. And we seem to look at suffering and pain and calamity in the world as God reaching in and punishing for their sin. And ignorance is not an excuse. No one has an excuse because God has made himself known in our, in our world. God may withhold final punishment or judgment until that end day, but we better follow the rules as closely as we can, hoping that we, we will be saved in the end. This is the life under God that's fearful of him. The flip side of that is coming to believe you do and are able to follow all of the rules and all of the laws. You're certainly better than anyone else around, however you assess that. And therefore, God will see you and bless you. He can even bless you now, not just in heaven, but he can bless you now. And he will reward you richly for how faithfully you follow all the rules and live a holy life above all others. This is a life under God. The life from God is similar to that if you remove all fear of punishment and judgment. That's not the God you believe in. This God is a God of love and a God of blessing. And that's all he wants to do is to give to those faithful ones who trust in him completely. He will pour out his blessing and his abundance in your life. That's what he's there for. He's like a divine butler or a good genie. And when we throw up our prayers, and especially when we have religious behaviors, he will bless us and meet us. Jesus paid all of our sin. That's why we don't have any fear of any judgment. So as long as we've said the right prayer, prayer and believed in him, we're good. We're on our way to heaven. And in this life now, it can be fully abundant and we will receive from him. This is a life from God. The extreme form is prosperity gospel. I name it and claim it. Just believe more and he, it will be yours. There is no relationship with God in this approach. It's only a relationship with ourselves, with what we want. We hope that it's what, also what God wants, but ultimately it's about us and fulfilling our needs and our satisfaction. God becomes like our own personal Yoda. We need wisdom in hard times. It's not just the prosperity, name it and claim it, but the more subtle consumerist Christian. I consume all that God has for me. And I know it, prob it probably isn't things. It probably isn't possessions, but I need God's wisdom. I need God's leading in my life because life is hard. It's still not a relationship with God. It's a relationship with ourselves. I need a Yoda, a guide, or if you do prefer, a Gandalf, the wise, to lead ahead, to be strong, and to, to, to give me the victory when the time comes. And whether it's prosperity gospel or consumer Christian, it's not the deep heart-level transformation that we're after. It's not humility and confession and repentance, nor the fruit of the Spirit as evidence of that life. It's shallow behaviorisms, like attending church regularly, giving enough, reading our Bible, memorizing verses, not swearing, praying before meals, on and on. You could make your list. When God doesn't seem to be blessing us enough, we, we, we ramp up the efforts. We take it to the next level, like finding a bigger stick to whack the pinata with. I, I, I will actually start tithing this year, God. I will actually read through the whole Bible this year and not stop in Leviticus. I will actually start serving in the nursery. I will go on that mission trip. I, you ever hear this? You ever feel this? <laughs> this life from God posture is pervasive. 
it's, it's out there. It's often, it's often some of the only ways we've grown up thinking that is a relationship with God, but it's only a relationship with ourselves and our own wants and desires. Life for God, this final wrong posture. This is a person knows that none of those other postures are a true relationship with God, and they do want and desire to have a relationship with God, to be close for him. But sadly, they still fall short because they believe that what he wants most is us to live a life for him, where his mission is the highest thing that we can accomplish. We fear a life of insignificance. We want to accomplish for him. We want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we assume that means because we've, we've lived so, so well and we've we especially saved as many possible people into his kingdom that he will reward us a life for him. We must worship passionately, study the Bible sincerely, give generously, serve wholeheartedly, share our faith unashamedly, believe unwaveringly. This almost sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds right to my ears because it's how I was raised. And for much of my life, it's the, it's the path and pursuit that I have been on. And I believe even unconsciously when I know it, it does not lead me closer to God, but closer to my vision of him, it can still be very subconscious and come through even my messages, I believe. And where that's true, I would want to repent of that because this does not draw us closer to God. When his mission is our highest aim, he is not. A life for God posture still is living in fear, like the life under God, that we won't be enough, we can't accomplish enough, we won't do enough, I need to be more significant. And is still striving for approval from him when he has already given it and already said we are loved and cherished. Matthew 7, and 23 illustrates what can happen when we replace a relationship with Jesus to a relationship with his mission as primary. On that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do many mighty works in your name? Whatever list you would, you would put up there. All these things we did for you, God. And Jesus will say to some of these, I never knew you. Depart from me. God did not create us for a life over him, under him, from him, or for him. He created us for a life with him. The highest goal is to know him, to commune with him, to love him and receive his love for us. This is the only right posture toward him. He does want us to join him in his work of redemption and kingdom, but it flows from communion with him, from our identity in him, not to earn identity or to earn favor or earn grace or earn love, but the other way. His very nature in God himself is communion. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit communing with one another, with one another. The whole story of scripture can be summarized with this theme in mind. God created a garden and was with humanity. He walked with them. That is broken. The rest of the story 
is God pursuing communion. And it's strange at times, and it's uncertain, and it's unknowing, and the gap and the chasm is big, but God's presence dwelt in the tabernacle. It dwelt in the temple. Jesus came and is the new tabernacle, Emmanuel, literally, God with us, walking this earth in the flesh. When he ascended, he sent the Spirit to dwell with his people, even in us and with his church. His presence is here. And the final picture we're given in Revelation 21 of that, that coming day when all will be made new, here's, what it, here's the center of it. The Apostle John received this vision, 21 verses, Revelation 21, verse 2 and 3. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Now the dwelling of God is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God, wiping away every tear. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is God's promise and desire for his humanity to dwell with them without restriction and for his people to know it and to know him fully. In a life with God posture, we do not seek to use God for anything that he can bring to us. God himself is the goal. To know him and to be known by him. To be restored to the perfect image we were given in creation, imago Dei, without division. And for forever humanity has struggled to grasp this or accept it. We embrace other postures and attitudes toward God as natural to us, as ones that make sense to us. Because this message of the gospel, the good news, is really unbelievable. That God could love us that much and want us that much. How is it we've missed it? Perhaps the most powerful and well-known parables of Jesus teaches this very point. It teaches the entire message of Scripture in a few short lines, as only Jesus could. We call it the parable of the prodigal son from Luke 15, 11 through 32. That's just a terrible title. This, is the, this at least should be the parable of the wayward sons, but I'd like to get our eyes off of the sons and on to the father. The parable of the good father. Could you remember it that way? The good father has sons, we see every posture that I described, that Pastor Jatani described, in the two sons. Right, the the, the younger son. I'm going to assume you have some gist of this. If you if you don't, I hope we can you can pick it up from Luke 15. The younger son lives a life as a posture from God while he's under under his father's household. It's not a true relationship with the father. He only wants what the father can give him. He demands his inheritance, a life from the father and then he goes out on his own. As time goes, this happens for us too, our, our postures and our position before God and our, our perspective can change. And the young son then starts to live a life over God, doesn't he? He's away from his father, does not need him anymore, he's gotten everything he needs from his father, and now he has, a, he has control and autonomy. He knows how the world works, 
and he's going to live it up, a life over God, really a life without him. But unforeseen things come, a famine strikes, he becomes destitute, and now he is eating alongside the pigs. And again, his posture, his heart posture changes as he realizes, I could live under my father again. I could return and grovel and confess and repent and live lowly under his household as a servant, not a son. I'll follow his rules, but life will be better than as it is now, a life under God. He comes back and you know the story, doesn't he? The father is looking and waiting. He will not let his son live under him. He calls him to live again with him. He throws a feast. He slaughters the fattened calf. He embraces him. He dresses him in royalty. And he's welcomed again into a life, an incredible grace, a life with the father. Meanwhile, the older son now embodies what has been true of him all along, a life for the father. He's jealous. He's angry because he didn't leave. He worked hard for his father his whole life. And what does the father say to him? Because that heart is just as wayward as the younger son's. You were always with me. Everything I had was yours. We have to celebrate because this son was lost, was dead, and now is found and is alive. That's what we celebrate in the kingdom, in the family. Come live a life with me. I think it's a powerful picture of our Father. Will we receive it? Will we be reminded as we move into this next season? And there's plenty of good things to do, as we've even heard about today. The most important thing is that we walk with our God. That we know, without a shadow of a doubt, that he loves us, is pleased with us, has given everything to restore communion with us and to invite us in. And where we have run to other postures, he does let us go. But if we will draw near, he will embrace us, receive us, shower grace upon us, and say, come, be with me in my kingdom. He takes joy in you. He is pleased with you. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He calls you beloved. Where we know that and have that posture towards this father, there is then freedom for confession, for repentance, for God, my father, look at my heart, look at my attitude, look at my works this week. Forgive me, Lord. And he embraces us. And as we walk with him, he extends opportunity in his kingdom immediately to join with him, the incredible father. Let us look to Jesus, God with us. Walk with him. Let him be the Messiah he's revealed himself to be. Not the one that we've created in our image. Our generous, compassionate, present, unhurried, humble, wise, shepherd who feeds, fills, and satisfies. Let us continue to draw nearer to him today, to find joy in his presence. And from that posture, 
we respond in both worship and we respond into the life he's called us into with him. Would you join me as we pray? And Tommy, Catherine, you can come and help lead us in response, please. Father, that's how, you, that's how Jesus taught us to address you. Father, even Abba, a more intimate term. We hesitate. Forgive us, Father, where we hesitate to approach you and name you as you said you want to be named. Help us to draw near. Your promise is you will draw near to us like the father at the doorstep looking and longing for his returning sons and daughters. Whether it's been a long time for some of my friends here where they've truly lived a life posture with you and been content with you alone. Or whether it's simply this week that we've run out into the world and by our actions and our attitudes have lived over you, under you, simply from you or trying to live for you in our own strength. Forgive us, Father. We draw near to be with you today. In this place, may it be holy because of your presence. Restore us, renew us, forgive us, encourage us, remind us of your love and pursuit and your heartbeat for the places that you've placed us, the places of pain that we see, whether within our own home, our extended families, our neighborhood, our community, and the world beyond. Help us to live with you in these days ahead, in the unknown season ahead. 